Uh, let me pray for us, and I'll let Jim EQ me as we're praying, and we'll get started. Father, thank you for, thank you for your word. God, as we jump back into the book of Galatians, uh, as I've been praying all day today, Lord, what people don't need is more of me. They need more of you. What they don't need to think is I, I'm intelligent or that I have a good grasp of the scriptures. God, what we need is they need to see through me and to see your beauty and your, your and delight in you. Father, I pray that you would take the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart and make them pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Father, what we want more than anything is to walk away having a high view of Scripture, having a high view of your Son, and Lord, worshiping your great name. So would you help us to do that? I pray tonight in Jesus' name, amen. The book of Galatians like I told you last week, Martin Luther says it's um, the most important book in the New Testament because it encapsulates all of the major themes of the Bible, but it does so in such a condensed, concise way. Paul is an extremely brilliant writer. He writes, like again, I'm not going to recap all this, but he writes very systematically, very formulaically. He gives you an indicative, what you should do, and then he gives you an imperative, why you should do it. He does this over and over again, and Paul is writing to a particular group of people in the region of Galatia called these Judaizers. What we know about the Judaizers are that they were people that were trying to mix the gospel with Judaism together. They were doing this thing that we would call the gospel plus something, but the gospel plus something just equals nothing, and that's Paul's point. They're challenging Paul's authority. They're challenging Paul's apostleship. And they're challenging Paul's message. Paul, in Galatians chapter 1, tells them, hey, you should be accursed if you teach any gospel contrary to the one that I'm teaching. I told you last week that word is anathema, uh, meaning literally you should go to hell. It's a pretty strong word, pretty strong language that he does. And Paul, he picks up this theme by saying that the proof in the pudding, if you will, is his life. So let me just ask you, what's your gospel story? When you think about your life, if the proof is in the pudding of how God has transformed your life, what is your gospel story? Over the last couple of days, um, our staff team has been walking through, and we do a prayer time on Tuesdays, and I walked them through Psalm 136. If you put a marker in your mind to go back there sometime, in Psalm 136, the, the writer, the psalmist, he recaps the entire history of Israel, and within every stanza, he uses this marker phrase, and he says, in the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. What, what he's saying there, that word steadfast is the Hebrew word hased. Most scholars will tell you it might be the most important word in the entire Bible. It's the never-ending, encapsulating love of God. And he's saying that every single marker in the history of Israel from creation on through was marked by God's never-ending love. Let me just ask you, what was your gospel story? If you go back to your story and you look at every marker, can you see can you mark it that God was working? Maybe a better question is, can the people around you see that? Can the people around you see that? This is what Paul says. Looks, here's where we left off is in verse 15. Let me read it to you again. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, verse 16, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, 
I did not immediately consult with anybody. This, This is the only place, by the way, if you mark this in your Bible, this is the only place that Paul that Paul points the language of his salvation to revelation. Notice that he says that Jesus revealed himself. That, that word, it's an apocalyptic term, meaning that everything in the world from beginning to end, uh, if I can use a big word, is eschatological, meaning that this end times focus, he wraps all of biblical history around Jesus and his revelation. And then he says, my salvific marker and life is wrapped around this idea that Jesus revealed, or revelation, remember there's information and there's revelation. What you hold in the hand, what you hold in your hand through the Bible is divine revelation. It means that God spoke. It's not information, it's revelation. He's telling you that his salvation experience on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 8 is revelation. Jesus spoke. Again, this is so important. Jesus is, watch this, the interpretation by which you interpret the entire world. You you have to do it through that lens. And then I love this. It was God's pleasure to reveal Jesus to Paul and to call him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. It was God's pleasure. Think about that. You know who Paul was? He was the traitor of the church. He was a terrorist. And it was God's pleasure to take the most awful human being on the planet and change him to be the protector of the church. Let me just ask you, does your salvation or does your theology have room for those type of people? I think it's a good question in 2023. Paul would have been who? Jeffrey Dahmer. Who can you think of as the most horrible human being on the planet? Who's that guy? Maybe make it more personal to you that only God can never save that guy. It was God's pleasure. It was God's pleasure to save Paul. God's pleasure to save you. The reason why I point that out is because I think it's really, really important that you, that you understand that you are never going to be too far gone for Jesus. I, I think this is Paul's point. There's nobody in the entire world that is too far gone for God's grace. God the Father revealed Jesus, his son, It pleased God to reveal his son to Paul in Acts chapter 8, to turn a terrorist into a disciple. It brings God joy when you come to faith. What you see here is that there is pleasure. God is joyful when you come to salvation. When your neighbor comes to salvation, when you find faith in him, God smiles at you. If you think about it, the way the Bible describes it, it's an anthropomorphism, meaning that you have to put human language on a spiritual God. You got to think personifying what it looks like when you came to faith, God smiled down on you. It brought him pleasure. I think there's something beautiful about that. What did he do? He called him. What did he call him to do? It's really important. To take the gospel to the Gentiles. Gentiles would have been non-believers. Where was Galatia? Galatia was in a Roman province filled with non-believers. They, they weren't Jewish people, they were Gentiles. See, he didn't consult. This is important because the, the consultation that these Judaizers kept accusing him of was that the fact that this wasn't a message that came through divine revelation. This was just something that the apostles told him and he took and he distorted the message of the gospel. But Paul is saying that's not how it happened. It was divine revelation from the Father. 
from God the Father who sent his son and he gave me a divine call to take the gospel to the Gentiles or to the non-believers or to the non-Jewish people. You're going to see this in a little bit. All of this takes place around Acts chapter 11, but after this, Acts chapter 15 was this massively important thing that happens in Acts chapter 15 called the Jerusalem Council. In the Jerusalem Council, the apostles get together to answer this question. Do the Gentiles need to walk through the Jewish rites of, of the law of Moses in order to be saved? Their answer was no. They actually affirm Paul's message. I think it's a good time to talk about how salvation works, though. Acts chapter, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 1, verse 16 tells you a lot about how salvation works. First, it starts with God the Father, who reveals his son to you. See, why is that important? Because listen, it doesn't really matter what you've ever done. Salvation works by God revealing himself to you, not you coming to God or doing anything to deserve it. Uh, if you ask God to reveal himself, he tends to do that. But here's some, here's some scriptures, because I don't have time to get through this, but go read John chapter 6. John chapter 6 tells you, all that the Father has sent me, I have received, and no one that I have received, I will ever drive away. Go read Ephesians chapter 2. You are dead to your sins and trespasses until God revealed himself. Go read Acts chapter 9 through, or I'm sorry, Romans chapters 9 through 11 you'll see this salvation history. And the reason why that's important is because if you had anything to do with your salvation at all, then Jesus was unnecessary. You are a picture of Paul. Spiritually speaking, you, you were terrorists to the gospel until God revealed himself to you and he was pleased to do it. He loved you enough to do it. He wanted to do it. And he has called you. You have the same exact calling that Paul did. You realize this, right? Matthew 28, 19, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Go, that's the calling, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's the Gentiles. Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'll be with you to the very end of the age. That's the promise. You know what's fascinating? As Americans, we don't understand this, but you are the ends of the earth. Whenever I was in Jerusalem with Jim a couple months ago, there was this question that he asked me, and it really sparked something in me that I never thought about. He says, I wonder why God picked Jerusalem, of all places. If you actually look on a map, it's the central point of the world. Everything is out from there. We are the ends of the earth in every direction. The gospel has come to the ends of the earth. Now, what's fascinating is it's kind of going back in and all the way around. That's how salvation works. God was pleased to reveal himself to you. Don't forget that. It's all by God's grace. And that should humble you. It's what humbled Paul. If Paul could have earned his salvation, Jesus would have been unnecessary. This should bring you to your knees so that you always look up. I've told you this before. It's hard to look down on others whenever you're always looking up to God. I think that was the posture of Paul's heart. Verse 17, this is fascinating. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. See, Paul wasn't taught by the apostles in Jerusalem. This is what he wanted you to know. He was taught by divine revelation. The idea here is that he is not regurgitating information that the apostles told him. It was many, many, many years 
after his conversion experience that he actually met the apostles. See, Paul's calling was divine. Now, here's why I think this is fascinating. This is me um, doing some digging on my own and giving you some speculative theology that I actually believe. Why Arabia? Why Arabia? Do you know what happened in Arabia? Mount Sinai. You know what Mount Sinai was? It was a place that God gave Moses the law. This is fascinating to me. Paul went away, and he's going to tell you this, for three years to Arabia. The very place that the law of Moses was given, the very place that is being um, scrutinized right now, the law of Moses, Paul says, I went back there. But I didn't go back there to get the law from God. Actually, I went back there to do exactly what Moses did. Do you know what Moses did on the Mount Sinai? He met with God face to face. What did Paul do in Arabia? He's going to tell you for three years he met with Jesus face to face. That's where he learned from Jesus. Why is three years important? That's how long the apostles spent with Jesus in his public ministry. Oh, I think it's really important to understand that Jesus made Paul an apostle because in order to be an apostle, you had to spend time with Jesus face to face. And Paul spent just as much time with Jesus face to face as Peter, James, and John. And he did it in Arabia, the place where the old covenant would no longer stand because he'd be given the new covenant by Jesus. See, Paul's primary qualifications for divine revelation is that he's an apostle. His apostleship did not come from the other apostles. His apostleship came from Jesus. His authority to stand on God's word came from the fact that he learned face-to-face directly from Jesus in Arabia of which he went back after three years to Damascus. How do I know that he was there for three years? Anybody? This is participation. He says in verse 18, that's exactly right. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit with Cephas. Who is Cephas? Peter. That's his Aramaic name, if you didn't know that. God gave him a name, Petra, which means rock. That's Peter, but his Aramaic name was Cephas. It's fascinating. They actually spoke in Aramaic and wrote in Greek, so he would have probably been called Cephas. But I went up to see Cephas, and I remained there for 15 days, not very long. Paul went to the place that God gave Moses the law, which is what was in contention with the Judaizers. Do you need the law or not? He studied for three years under Jesus, like all the other apostles did. He apprenticed under Jesus, and that was proof That was proof that he had divine revelation. And the new law, this is super important. The new law superseded the old. Because what did Jesus tell you? I did not come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. Fulfill it. You know, Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7, he does one of the most fascinating things that you would ever think to do in the Bible. He actually tells you that the Pharisees, the Pharisees would have been, by the way, can I just say side note, the Pharisees get a really hard time, but they really don't deserve it. The Pharisees were trying hard to keep the law of God. They they were trying really hard to be obedient followers of God, the best that they knew how. But Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees was that they abandoned the law of God for the traditions of man, and that is all of our, um, that's all of our, What's the word I'm looking for? Danger. Is that we will surround ourselves 
with so many good things that we will walk away from God. Our staff team just got done reading um, Prodigal God by a guy named Timothy Keller. I don't know if you've ever heard of him or not. Um, but Tim Keller talks about how the one son, the older son, was in much more danger of missing God because his religious rules kept him too prideful to understand his need for God. This would have been the Pharisees, and this is the danger for all of us. Here's what Jesus does that's so revolutionary in Matthew 5 through 7. He says, you think that the Pharisees have raised the bar so high that they've become so religious that no, nobody can get to me. In reality, they have not raised the bar at all. They've lowered the bar so low because they've made it merely external. That's why Jesus says, you've heard it said that if you murder somebody, but I tell you if you've hated anybody in your heart. What Jesus is saying is you've just made the law merely external. It's just religious conformity to a bunch of rules, but you've got to understand I'm not going after religious conformity. I'm going after your heart. And because I'm going after your heart, your motives matter just as much as your actions. And that's why I had to come to abolish the law. Not because I abolished it like it didn't matter, but I fulfilled it. And because now that I've fulfilled the law, now you can live righteously through me because it's not about religious conformity, but your heart and your affections change. I'm going to give this away, but one of the illustrations I'm going to do this weekend, as our next weekend, as I thought about the fear of God, and it's something we talked about, is you relate to God differently whenever you fear him properly. And here's the illustration. Imagine you went home today, and you can tell me if this lands or not because I'm working on it. But imagine you went home today and you found a fine piece of china in your cabinet that you just always thought was a cup. But you found out that that fine piece of china that you always thought was a cup is actually not just a cup. It's a hundred-year-old piece of china that's worth over a million dollars. The way that you would relate to that cup would be totally different, not because you fear that it's going to hurt you, but you fear that you're going to hurt it. See, the way that the gospel works is when you see God properly, you no longer think he's going to hurt you. You don't want to hurt him because you fall deeply in love with him. That's what Jesus is saying, the way that you change somebody's hearts. Or if I want to use the way that the old Puritan Thomas Chalmers said it, and I say this a lot, it's the explosive power of a new affection. You know, it, the reality is, is if you love something enough, you don't want the other thing. And that's a much greater motivation for love than religious rules and conformity. Like if you're a parent, you can beat your kids into submission, but they won't love you. But you can love them in such a way that they want to love you back. And that doesn't mean you don't have rules. Jesus had rules, right? The, I, I've said this before, and we're all adults in here. I know this goes online, but like you can tell a high school boy that he can turn it off like that. And the high school boy is like, you're an idiot, old man, right? Well, it's getting, he it's getting heated. They're at third base. And then six foot four, 240 pound Navy SEAL dad walks in the room and he's no longer thinking about her. He's thinking about the preservation of his life because he's attracted to that so much more than he is to that. That's the way this works. You don't have to flee, if you will, from bad things. That's religious conformity. You need to turn your eyes upon Jesus and fall deeply in love with him. And then those things will begin to grow strangely dim. Y'all, I wish somebody would have told me that when I was 18 or 19. I wish somebody wouldn't have told me, hey, all you got to do is like do good things and God, that's, that's a trap that only makes you die. So I tell my, I've said it this way before, fences can either keep people out or they can make safe places for your kids to play. The gospel is about making safe places for you to play, not about keeping things out. And whenever you understand that, whenever you understand what Jesus is doing here, you understand that the law is good, but the law doesn't save you. This is what Paul wants you to understand. This is what the gospel uh, or the book of Galatians is all about. It's a fence that keeps you safe 
It's not a bunch of rules that keep you miserable. So he goes up to Arabia. He goes to learn for three years, and he comes back to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, and he remained there for 15 days. But on verse, on verse 19, but I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. Verse 20, and what I'm saying, or what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie, because again, they're challenging this. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia. You have to understand that Paul is driving home the point that he didn't learn this stuff from other men, but he learned it from God and his authority comes from Jesus. And here's what's going on here. Paul, if you want to mark through, and this is really fun to do, and we're going to do this for the next year, is walk through the book of Acts. But you can mark Paul's travels through Tarshish over to Jerusalem through Antioch, okay? Antioch is Syria. Tarshish would have been um, uh, uh, Sicilia. These are the regions. So if you start marking out your regions here, but what you see here is these were the first two trips that Paul made. And they lasted eight years. Start doing the math for how long it was before Paul met the apostles. His first visit to Jerusalem happened in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. You can see that if you actually go back and read it. And then you also see in Acts chapters 15, uh, where he went from Syria to Sicilia. All this stuff you can mark out, Paul is showing you his whole missionary journeys through Galatia. Verse 22. And when I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. You know, Judea, if, you, if I can go through some biblical history with you, if you were here for the book of Daniel, remember the nation of Israel was two nations divided in half, right? You had the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, okay? If you didn't know this, there were 12 tribes of Israel. I'm gonna give you some biblical history here. 10 of those tribes went with the northern kingdom of Israel. Two of the tribes went with the southern kingdom of Judah. Anybody want to guess the names of those two tribes? One of them is in the name Judah. Judah. The other one's a little more difficult, Benjamin. These two tribes went and became the southern kingdom of Judah. Jerusalem itself is in the southern kingdom of Judah, is the capital, okay? Anybody know what the capital of this northern kingdom of Israel was? Jim does. No, that's in Syria. Good try, though. Good try. Samaria. Okay? Where Jacob's well was, where we actually went as well. The epicenter of Judaism was Jerusalem. What's important about verse 22 is Paul tells you something really important. The epicenter of Jerusalem, or of Judaism, is in Christ. I love that. The gospel has gone to Jerusalem. Right now, I was still unknown in person to the churches in Judea and Judea that are in Christ. These people, these people, the epicenter, have become Christians. They aren't religious like the Judaizers, and they're they're walking with Jesus. These Christians encouraged and recognized and validated the ministry of Paul. They did not create it. This is what Paul wants you to continue to see. The churches in Judea, Jerusalem Council Acts chapter 15, they simply affirmed what Paul was already doing. 
Not only that, if you, if you go to this, and we're going to see this in chapter 2, they commissioned Paul and Barnabas to take the gospel back out with Titus, to, the, to take the gospel to the nations. This is the true gospel. Verse 23, and they were, they were hearing it said, I love this, he who persecuted us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Paul the persecutor, is now Paul, the protector of the church. Let me go back where I first began. Paul's life was his proof. What about you? What about you? If you were to have an honest conversation with your neighbors or your childhood friend or the people around you that know you well, would they say that your life is proof of your salvation? Would they say, man, I knew that guy. I can tell you that about me. If you go back to my high school buddies and you tell them what I do now, they would be like, that blows my mind that you, of all people, would preach the gospel. Because my life has been radically transformed by the gospel. Now, that's not everybody's story. I tell my kids, and I'll be honest with you, the best testimonies are the most boring testimonies. That is a miracle of a testimony. Not that you were a traitor that became a disciple, but that you grew up in a family with faithful parents that poured the gospel into you and you never knew anything other than Jesus. That is a miraculous story. So I, I, hear, I hear us celebrate amazing transformational stories all the time, and we should. Rachel's story that I shared last week, amazing transformational gospel-powered story. We should share those. We should equally share Luke's story, whose dad was a pastor, grew up in a church, loves Jesus, and is faithfully committed to our church. Praise God for that. That's what I hope my kids have. I promise you, no parent in the room is like, man, I hope my kids jack up their life so that one day they can have a story on the TV screen at a church. But if it is your story, that's a great story. Paul's story was that story. And it was the proof that he is who he said that he is. Verses 21 through 24. It's the summary of chapter 1. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Let me just say this one more time. Your life has the ability to draw people to faith, if you'll let God do it. If you will let God do it, it will draw people to faith. Oftentimes, whenever you're speaking about the gospel, you're, no, you're oftentimes not speaking to the person directly in front of you. You're speaking to the people around you listening. Your life does the same thing. You never know how God is going to use it. What if your life story was marked by the said steadfast love of the Lord? It was the steadfast love of the Lord that did this in my life. It was the steadfast love of the Lord that brought me to Alpharetta to be a part of City Church. It was the steadfast love of the Lord that made help me to meet my wife and have my kids or whatever. Mark your stories. Jim and I were sharing that just the other day. Um, the steadfast love of the Lord brought a man into his life that became his boss in 1993 that changed him. That man in 1993 was my father-in-law that we didn't know until my father-in-law was putting together some furniture inside of this church and Jim walked upstairs and said, you know that guy I've been telling you about all these years that made a massive impact in my life? You never told me your wife's maiden name was Ruby. 
The steadfast love of the Lord had a plan. I told Jim the other day, right when that was happening in the early 90s, my family was moving from Europe to America. If you would have only been able to piece all of that together, it would have blown your mind 30-something years ago. He watched my wife walk around an office in downtown Atlanta before I ever knew her. It's the steadfast love of the Lord that's writing your story. My question for you is, do you know that? Do you believe that? And are you allowing him to do that in your life? That's the point of Galatians chapter one. God, in his infinite wisdom and his divine pleasure, saw fit to take a terrorist and make him a disciple and then change the world through him. Let me just pause before we get into chapter two. And I think it's always good here for a couple minutes to open up the floor for Q&A. Do you guys have any questions? I know that's dangerous <laughs> because I'm not prepared for this, but I would love to be able to just field any questions and then we'll dive into chapter two. Um, do we need for the recording to have a microphone or does that not matter? Okay. If you'll go, well, no, but if you'll go ahead, I'll repeat the question um, so that it's recorded and then we'll, we'll jump into chapter two. There's a friend of mine in Kenya. Um, his name is John Jiroge. John was an apologist. Um, if you don't know, that's the Greek word apologia, which means to make a defense for, not to apologize. So he was made a defense for Christianity for RZIM. If you don't know anything about them, you can go look that up later. He, he worked there, and he used to always tell me, hey, nobody likes the first question, so let's just throw that one out and go directly to the second one. So does anybody have a question? Really? Nothing? It's a lively bunch. Oh, come on, Elise. Okay, last week you mentioned something about 15 years, like that Paul. Yeah. Can you repeat that? And then where, like. Yeah. Where so great. Um, chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. We're going to get into that in just a second. Um, so there's a timeline that Paul's going to walk through there in chapter 2. Great question. Hey, thanks for being so in, attuned and attentive to the scriptures. That's awesome. I love that. Anybody else? Like, what's going on with the submarine in the middle of the ocean? Nothing? All right. Chapter two. You guys ready? We've got 30 minutes. Let's see how far we get. Let's read it together. Sam, I am going to read it. You asked me, am I going to read the whole chapter? Yeah, I found out right now I'm going to read the whole chapter. All right, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of revelation. There it is again. If you mark words, by the way, Bible study, if you see words repeated over and over and over, they tend to be important, okay? Biblical writers write with intentionality. Revelation is a really important word through the book of Galatians. And he set before them, although privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. 
But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, that's going to be a particularly important theme, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality, another major theme. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised also worked through me and for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be the pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Those are the Judaizers. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically among, along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay. Mark that word then in your Bible in verse 1. That word then is a connecting word. And it's actually a connecting word back to the summary statement of the entire chapter. Then after 14 years, so why is that important? Because it's one complete trace of historical data going back to verse 18 of chapter 1. So that three years is connected. So you can see it in sequence. Then I did this. Then I did that. First I went to Arabia. Then I went back to Damascus. Then I went to Sicilia. Then I went to Antioch. And then after 14 years, you see the sequence? It's one thing. If you didn't know this, when the Bible was originally written, there weren't chapter breaks. We added those. It was one letter. Okay, so this is one continuous thought. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus with me. Take note of this. When you read your Bible, I often say don't waste the white spaces. In those paragraph breaks, there tends to be years. Okay, there's one paragraph break in um, David's life where you see that David was called by, by Samuel from his father Jesse to be the king of Israel, or Judah to be specific. And then there's a seven-year gap in between the paragraph break. If you don't read the Bible in its historical context, you lose something really important. You know what you lose? Time. Listen, God takes time to marinate you for the sake of using you. You know, I feel like God called me to plant a church 15 years ago. 
But if I'd have planted a church 15 years ago, it would have been terrible. I wouldn't be in ministry. I probably wouldn't be married. I was arrogant. I was untrained and not ready. But I was angry that God had called me to do something, and he didn't let it happen immediately. Oftentimes, God doesn't do things immediately. 40 years in the desert for the nation of Israel, for Moses. Three years, honestly, of public ministry, but do you know what Jesus did is he had 30 years of preparation. Think about that. He wasn't, he's the God in the flesh, wasn't until he was 30 years old that he started doing the ministry. For Paul, 14 years before he actually met with the apostles and started doing his public work of ministry. See that? The word there connects it. There's a sequence of events, and it's super important from Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 8. Paul does, he, he goes to Galatia, and then in Acts chapter 11, that's Galatians chapter 2, he meets the apostles. So from Acts chapter 8 to Acts chapter 11, he doesn't meet the apostles. Acts chapter 11, we know that he meets with the apostles in Antioch. Go back to Acts chapter 11, you'll see that. And that's where he meets Paul, or that's where he meets Peter, where he sees him face to face in Antioch. If you notice that in chapter 2, he tells you that face to face. That's where they have this disagreement. Antioch, which is Syria, which that's where Damascus is. Paul's conversion, just so you put some timelines to it, probably happened around AD 34, 35. What major event happened in around AD 33? Resurrection. It's really important. Why is that important? That means that Paul met Jesus pretty quickly after the resurrection. Um, Not 50 years, not 75 years, but shortly after the resurrection, Paul met Jesus, spent time with him. 34, 33, 34, 35, he he meets the resurrected Christ, spends three years with him, And then it's several years later that he actually meets up with the apostles. If you remember from last week, I told you that this battle that was going on was between these Judaizers and Paul about his relationship between the law law and the gospel. What's going on here, they're asking. Well, what's fascinating here is that Paul mentions two people. Who are those two people? This is participation day. It's, It's in verse one. Barnabas and Titus. Did you know in the Mishnah, the Mishnah would have been the Jewish rabbinical text. It says that anybody's testimony is only valid in the court with two witnesses. I think it's fascinating that that's what Paul's doing here. He's playing on their law in order to validate the fact that their law doesn't work, (laughs) that the gospel is the real one. So he tells you, and that, that these two people, these two to three witnesses, that's Paul, Barnabas, and Titus, well, they traveled together. They were present with him in Jerusalem, right? He's telling you, I didn't meet the apostles until Acts chapter 11. By the way, Paul, or by the way, Barnabas and Titus, they traveled with me. Go ask those guys. They were there whenever I met Cephas or, or Peter, and I met James, the brother of Jesus. If you didn't know that, Jesus had brothers. And I always think that the best testimony of Jesus is um, his divine authority is the fact that he convinced his brother that he was God, right? I mean, I, I know I'm not the first person to say that, but you couldn't convince me if my brother raised from the dead that he was God. What would it take for you to believe that your brother was God? James, if you didn't know this, James actually didn't, James was a skeptic. 
History would tell us that he came to faith after the resurrection, and then he died for the faith. Actually, again, history would tell you that he was thrown off of the Temple Mount and killed. I didn't realize how tall the Temple Mount was until seeing it with my own eyes. It's crazy. But this guy died for the faith and his brother as the father of the world. So he tells them, just to get back to it, that Barnabas, Barnabas and Titus are his testimony. Now, what's fascinating to me is that Barnabas actually took Paul along with them. Barnabas was instrumental in, uh, in the, the apostles actually trusting Paul. If you go back and read the book of Acts, they were skeptical of him. You would be too, okay? Three weeks ago, he's killing your brother. Right now, you're saying he's a Christian. And he had the divine, not the divine, he had the authority of the chief priest to kill you. Barnabas had to vouch for him. Barnabas was like, no, this brother's good. Trust me, I've been with him. Go read the book of Acts. It's really cool. What's also fascinating about Titus is that Titus, again, last, last trivia for now. Is Titus a Jewish name? No. It's a Greek name. What were the Greeks? They were Gentiles. See that? You have a pillar of the Jewish faith in Barnabas and a pillar of the Gentile world in Titus as a convert to Christianity traveling together with Paul, and they are validating his faith. There's this thing called the pastoral epistles. They're written by Paul, and they're written to specific individuals. Titus is one of those. All right, I said I, I wouldn't do this, but do you know who the other one is? Timothy. Timothy. Paul actually takes Titus with him, actually, in his third missionary journey, and Titus is instrumental in the church of Corinthians, the Corinthian church. It's really cool whenever you look at this. These were faithful brothers who preached the gospel alongside of Paul. They're his testimony. So what you have here is you have the validation of Paul's ministry based on his life and then based on the lives of the people that were changed because of his life. I think both of those are important, aren't they? You can tell me all day long that your faith has changed you, but has your faith changed anybody around you? This is a convicting question that I ask our staff, and I want to ask you, who was the last person that came to faith because of your life? Not, you hear this correctly, salvation happens through Christ alone, but he uses you. Romans 10.9, Paul would actually say, how will they know unless you go? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. When was the last time somebody's life was changed because of you? I just, it's a convicting thing. Listen, I, I have to think about that too. Does my life speak the gospel and do I have witnesses of the gospel because of my life towards them? Think about that. Verse two. Verse one, by the way, is the summary statement of chapter one. Verse two is the summary statement of his purpose, okay? Here's verse two. I went up because of revelation. There it is. Underline that, circle that. See how many times you see revealed and revelation in the book of Galatians. Because of revelation and set up before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I'm not running or had run in vain. You know, this is important. Do you know how many people tell me God called me to do this. And my first question is, that's great, but who did you run that by? 
Who spoke into your life from a, a place of wisdom and authority and affirmed that they see that in you? Paul was not too prideful to bring the gospel of revelation that, by the way, he heard directly from Jesus himself and bring that to the apostles and say, hey, I need you guys to validate this, right? That's what he did. I took it to the ones who seemed influential and I said, hey, am I doing this in vain? Like, am, am I doing the right things? You know, this revelation is important because it wasn't compelled by the apostles which is what they were accusing him of, but it also wasn't negated by the apostles. I told you this, calling tends to be ability, affinity, community, and responsibility. One of the things that I find lacking most in Christians is their sense of submitting to biblical community. Why? You know why? Here's why I think because I don't think we want to be told no. But we're often blind to our own blindness. And it takes a lot of humility to say, hey, this is what I think God has called me to do. Do you, you know me well? Do you affirm this in me? The majority of bad things that I see happening in people's lives is because they feel like they've been called to do something and they never affirmed, it was never affirmed by anybody else. Or, or here's the other one, or it's affirmed by all these people who live far away. Well, yeah, my mentor in California and in Montana. Like, what about your small group or your pastors? I didn't run it by them. Paul, he went to Jerusalem. He spoke privately with them. This is how we know, by the way, that he's not referring to the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. This should place timing for you. Back to Acts chapter 11, if you're looking for historical data, Paul didn't speak publicly to them yet. Acts chapter 15 is the Jerusalem Council. It's a public hearing where they're making an authoritative stance on the church. This is Acts chapter 11. And I love this. When Paul went up to Jerusalem to meet with them privately, these influential people, most likely Peter, James, and John, he proclaimed the gospel to them. Did you notice that? I went up because of the divine revelation, and I proclaimed the gospel among them. How bold is that? He proclaimed the gospel to Peter, James, and John. Peter, because he's Peter, is probably like, bro, I was there. Like, I know. I'm the guy that got scared from the middle school girl. That's me. Peter's like, you don't have to tell me this. But Paul's like so passionate about the gospel that he proclaimed the gospel to him. The gospel is the way of salvation. Now, let's have a talk. Acts chapter 11, at the end of the chapter, he's in Antioch, where he meets Peter to proclaim the gospel to him. Now, this is varsity level, if you know this. What happened in Acts chapter 10? You can look back in your Bible. Peter gets a divine revelation. I call it the pig in a blanket. God comes to him and says, Peter, brings out a blanket full of these unclean animals, and he says, eat. Peter's like, no, Lord, I'll never eat that which is unclean. Pig in a blanket, right? And what does he say? Go to Cornelius, one Simon a Tanner who lives by the sea. He's going to tell you what to do with Cornelius. You know who Cornelius was? A Gentile, right? So watch this. Peter takes the gospel to a Gentile. It clicks with him. 
all of a sudden, as the gospel comes to Cornelius, brings Peter together, Peter's like, oh, you're not talking about pigs in a blanket, you're talking about people. Don't call what I call clean unclean. The Gentiles were unclean. It's at that very moment that God is divinely bringing this guy, Paul, to Antioch. As Peter is taking this message back to the church to affirm, without knowing, Peter, without knowing Paul's coming, to affirm that the gospel has not gone to the Gentiles. I saw the Spirit of God, he says in Acts chapter 11, fall on Cornelius and his entire family. He's like, guys, the same Holy Spirit that we got has now come to Cornelius. At the same time, Paul is coming in to proclaim the gospel. And he's saying, God called me years ago to go to the Gentiles. See what God's doing? The church would have been skeptical if it was just Paul. But God was orchestrating the entire thing so that Paul and Peter would meet up at the same exact time with a divine revelation going from Cornelius to the gospel going to the Gentiles and Paul from Acts chapter 8 saying, no, I've been learning in Arabia in the desert places. Again, notice that the desert places, God tends to form you in the desert places. I just think that's so important. God never forms you on the mountaintops. He always forms you in the valleys. J.I. Packer said that God cannot use a man deeply until he's our God cannot use a man greatly until he's hurt him deeply. I think there's something true about that. He comes out of the desert place. He's been learning directly from Jesus himself. He has the apostolic authority. He takes it to Jerusalem. He meets with these guys privately. And Peter's probably like, bro, the same thing just happened to me. If you would have told me three days ago, I'd have told you, you've lost your mind, but I saw God do it. And then you see how it all comes together. See that? See how God works? Paul did not need their approval because he had God's, and yet he affirmed his calling through their approval. But God was ultimately orchestrating all this in the background while it was going on. You don't need to be afraid of asking for the church's or your community's approval in your calling if it's from God, because God will do the work in the background to affirm it. Sometimes I think that we just don't see how big God is. See, God was preparing the Jewish church for when Paul was to arrive so that the church would be united. I love that. And I've told you this before, unity and uniformity are not the same thing. God is after unity, not uniformity. He doesn't want sameness, he wants oneness, which means that there's room for all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, black people, white people, brown people, Asian people, Caucasian people, it doesn't matter. The gospel is for all people. Started off with a Middle Eastern man in Palestine, and it's made its way through every culture that has ever existed. God knows what he's doing. Verse three, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now, here's what's amazing about this, is Pastor Clayton has decided that he's going to host a class right after this on circumcision, if you want to learn more about that subject. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, how do you recover from that? Circumcision was a physical marker of a change in your life. That's what it was. 
In the new covenant, there's a physical marker of a spiritual change in your life through baptism. See, what was happening here is this sign of the covenant, this sign was a physical conformity to the law. You had to show yourself physically as being conformed to this Mosaic law, and yet in the new covenant, it's done through baptism. Why? Why? Listen, because Jesus was physically cut so that you never would have to be. That's the point. I know we joke around about the, the silliness of this, but the really the, the massive point is that Jesus was physically cut so you don't ever have to be again. How absolutely beautiful is that? The sign in the seal of the covenant is Christ himself, who would be physically cut off, literally cut off from God so that, and if we can be adults here, so that you don't ever have to have anything cut off of you. That's the point. In the Old Testament, you had to be cut to be brought in, but God is showing Paul that through Titus, Jesus was cut for him so that now everybody can be brought in, even though he was a Greek. They tried to force him to go back to the physical conformity of the Mosaic law because he was a Greek. But God says, you don't have to be. Why? Verse 4. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in, oh, I could do a whole sermon on this. Oftentimes, the church is ruined by people who secretly slip in looking like the real thing. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to ask you to make sure that that's not you. Because it's easy to look and say it's somebody else. Do you major on the minors? Are you more about winning an argument than winning the relationship? Do you see the big picture? Do you see that the gospel is our ultimate authority? Do you see that we are people that are about people? People are the mission around here. Do you see, by the way, did you know this? The ultimate mission is to see the gospel flourish, which means that the church is made for the mission. The mission is not made for the church. This is a vehicle to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You know that you're not secretly doing it whenever you're about God's agenda and not yours. I just want you to do, I do this too. This is all of us, okay? Check your ego at the door. This ain't about you, and it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And the most beautiful way that churches happen is when they're about unity and not uniformity. We don't have to be the same, and we don't have to agree on everything as long as we agree on the mission, which means that it's always, because here's one of our plumb lines, healthy things grow and healthy things change. And when you get the gospel, then you understand that this church is not going to be the same church today that it's going to be in five years, and that's going to make some of us uncomfortable because the gospel changes everything. So these brothers who slipped in to spy out, what were they spying out? Our freedom that we have in Christ. I think that this is the number one thing that people get frustrated about. Why? Because it falls right in the face of legalism. What do you mean you're playing songs by that group? Right? Or how are you so frustrated with them because they don't have a problem with whatever these things are that you have a problem with. Fill in the blank. I don't know, wine. What are the things? Back in Jim's generation during the prohibition, you couldn't dance. 
right? <laughs> Easy. He cut off the mic. <laughs> they were spying out the freedom that they have in Christ Jesus. So they might, watch this, this is so important, bring us back into slavery. Anything you add to the gospel makes you a taskmaster, and it will begin to own you. Paul is using, if I can use a big word, a pejorative here. When he calls them false brothers, he's not saying something nice. It's a pejorative. A false brother is not a brother at all. That means that they look like Christians, they wear the name tag, but they're not Christians. They're sheep among wolves. They're Pharisees who have slipped in. Here's what you need to know. Pharisees always slip in the back door, and if you're not careful, you'll become one. How do you know you've become one? Because you've become a slave to the law again. Normally, I think the best way to understand if you're a slave to the law again is if you care more about other people's religious activities than you do yours. You know what I'm saying? You hold other people to a higher standard that you don't even hold yourself to. How do you know that? What do you think about and what are you doing at 11 p.m. when nobody's looking? Okay? I, if I can just get on my high horse, because I only have two minutes left, it's this. Most people, the thing that they are most religiously affectionate about is normally the greatest struggle in their own life. If they're standing on the high horse about, the, I'll give it to you this way. Most, statistically speaking, whenever you have somebody in a relationship who's very controlling about who you hang out with, if it's a guy or whatever, they're probably committing the adultery and they're just being controlling to you. It's the same thing with any kind of religious activity. Whenever you're super adamant about, I can't believe that person, I can't believe that person, it's normally because there's something going on in your own heart. Um, Tim Keller, that guy that you know I introduced you to earlier, says, don't be a Pharisee about Pharisees. Sometimes you can even be a Pharisee about Pharisees. You have to check your own heart at the door. These false brothers, they slipped in, and the way they do that is they take, they take theology and they slightly alter it. They don't, you know, Jesus, is, I'm sorry, Satan is really smart. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he didn't take bad theology, he took misplaced theology. If you actually go and read the book of Job, Job's friends say true statements. It's wisdom misapplied that becomes false. This is what happens all the time, and this is what you have to be careful of. The gospel's freedom. The gospel's freedom. The law is slavery. We'll get into more of that next week because I promise you I'd be on time and I have 15 seconds, 13, 12, 11, 10. Father, thank you for these brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for this word. God, I know these things can be heavy to digest, but they're so good for our soul when we get them. Thank you that Paul was bold enough to tell it to us. Lord, help us to live in freedom and not submit back to slavery. God, you've saved us for something better, a gospel that actually transforms, and we pray that you would help us to live out that freedom in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I hope this was helpful. We'll dive back in. We'll keep going next week. Thank you for being here. My God alone, time to stand.